Well, today I have the privilege of doing the first of two, two weeks, um, kind of broken up into four little sermonettes, so don't leave after half time. All right, because we've got to, as things are going to be a little different today. Some of you know that I've just returned from a mission trip to Eastern Europe um, covering Russia, um, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, and then a week in Cyprus, which I don't count as Eastern Europe. But I met with several Christian leaders from those former USSR bloc countries. And in response to my general question, what are the challenges to the evangelical churches in Eastern Europe today? Well, they didn't respond to what I expected. They didn't say it was the atheistic structure and, and society that came out of those communist years. It wasn't that. It wasn't the fact that there's an anti-gospel society dominated by orthodoxy. It wasn't that either. And it wasn't the fact that there's a great amount of, of Islamic recruitment going on. It wasn't that either. I was amazed because they said the greatest threat to the evangelical church in Eastern Europe is affluent apathy that they've taken from the Western Christian church. You see, when pushed for their reply, they said this, that before the USSR broke up, The evangelical churches used to have to fight just to breathe. They're under threat all the time. They depended on the authority of God's word rather than the dictates of their atheistic socialist leaders. But now, under the influence of an affluent Western Christianity, they've become complacent, bloated, And they've lost their fervor for the commitment that they used to have. They've lost their authority in Scripture. However, these these leaders believe that the evangelical church will survive. It'll probably just have to go underground again if it's going to regain its fervor. What an indictment upon us in the West that we are considered to be bloated and complacent and we've lost our basis of authority in Scripture. That's an indictment. You know, in our church here, we fight for that. We stand on the authority of Scripture. But so many churches around the world have caved in and they're secularised. How did this come about? Well, the boil frog theory. Anybody familiar? Well, hang on if you're not. The theory goes as follows. 
a frog that is put into, immersed into boiling water is immediately going to jump out, save its life. However, if the frog is immersed in cold water and then the heat is slowly turned up, the frog will not notice the danger in its environment and remain in the water until it's boiled to death. It appears that the increased secularization and complacency and affluence in the Western churches is based on this principle that we've become so used to having everything our way more than enough for our own means, we've become indistinguishable from the society around us. We've compromised to the point where our attempts to be relevant mean that we've become irrelevant and ineffective. Well, the Apostle Paul, rather the Apostle John, in his old age, was living in a society similar to ours. And Oliver's going to come and read to us from the text for this morning. Would you welcome Oliver? That which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. We have proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live without the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus with his son purifies us from all sin. Thank you, Oliver. The young church in John's day was dominated by a number of factors. You see them up there. A polytheistic and anti-Christian Roman Empire. Polytheistic means that there, there were many gods. While I was in Cyprus, I was taken to the site where Aphrodite was born. She rose from the sea according to myth, and there's a a big rock just offshore near Pathos. And if you are suffering from singleness, you hop in a boat, you row around this several times, and you're guaranteed to find love. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, often called Venus. She was just one of many that came out of that Greek-Roman 
pantheon of gods. But they weren't very amenable to having one God over all who is sovereign and demands obedience. Also, John was writing against those that taught that there were many ways that you could find God. In fact, you couldn't believe that Jesus was God because the Gnostics of those days believed that there's spirit and there's flesh. The spirit is elevated, the flesh is suppressed. And so when you talk about Jesus being the God-man coming down from heaven and taking on human form, they said, that's ridiculous. God would never pollute himself to becoming a human. And so they denied the authority and they denied the incarnation of Jesus. And you know that they were persecuted. John was riding from in exile in Patmos. Paul was executed. Ten out of the twelve disciples supposedly were executed. It was not a good time to be a Christian. So what was his response to all this? Well, he was living in an age when the lights of truth, purity and love were fading fast. And these are the same lights that we need to guide us through our rather dark spiritual and moral morass of today's society. And we're in it, folks. And the church is part of it. You only have to look at some of the statements that have been made by church leaders over the last, well, even the last decade. And it's scary how much they've departed from Scripture. If we don't have scripture as the basis of our faith and our beliefs, then we're basically drifting. To ignore John's words will confirm the views of those in the Eastern Bloc that we are bloated and complacent and we've lost our commitment to scripture. We need to reset our beliefs and our behaviours to the manufacturer's settings. And I'm smart enough to know about modern technology. I'm smart enough to know that I've got to ask my grandchildren. You see, that's my history. You know, you pile everything up there from the old gramophone all the way down to, well, now you can get all that in a thumblet drive. That's, that's my history. I couldn't find the reset button in there. But you know there's a reset button on your mind, on your heart, that we have to push if we're going to survive. We've got to go back to manufacturer settings. And now a word from our sponsor. Um, so Dr. Barker is going to be doing two small sermons and then I'm going to get up in the middle uh, and, and sort of 
uh, relate what he's saying since we've got the kids in the room in a way that is hopefully going to make some sense to the kids uh, and maybe some adults as well, right? Um, unfortunately, they don't have a chicken this week like I did last week. Um, but Graham did have a great idea, that picture of frogs before. Frogs. Graham, when he rang me that, this week, asked if I could do that, get a pot of hot water and put frogs in it, right? Uh, and I'm like, mate, we can't. Um, we don't have gas in here. so. Um, and plus, it's pretty inhumane. He, I don't think he was serious when he asked that. So we're not going to do that, but we are going to talk about truth. So as Graham said before, uh, John speaks about resetting uh, to the manufacturer's settings uh, around tr- uh, truth, uh, purity and love. We'll look at purity and love next week, but this week we're going to think about truth, right? So I want you to think about truth. What we're going to do right now is we're going to read a, a book. Okay, I've got an... Uh, a book on my computer, which should come up onto the screen. It's called The Red Book. Has anyone read The Red Book? Okay, cool, right. Now, I want you to think about truth as we read this. Hopefully you can see it all right. Now, it says, hello, uh, let's read this book together. First, we need to sort out a few things here, right? What color is the crown? Yellow. Okay, what color is the tie? All right, what color are the glasses? Purple, yeah, good. All right, no. They're all red, okay? Uh, and by the end of this book, you will think they are red too. And not only that, you will know that this whole book is red. Watch closely. You paying attention? Yeah, this, I need audience feedback today, right? Uh, so I know I've got um, Owen and Georgia on board, but if everyone else could be too, that'd be great. Okay, let's do this. This is Barney. He is a lobster. He's red, right? Yeah, good. Uh, we agree. It's a great way to start. Now, this is Fergus. He, one of the frogs we saw earlier, right? Jumped out of the pot just in time. He's also red. No, he, no, no. he's as red as red can be. Right? I'm going to convince you. Barney and Fergus are the same colour, obviously. No, they are, they are. And I'll tell you why, right? Uh, in fact, it's a well-known fact that Barney, the lobster, only ever wears red clothes. Only ever wears red clothes, right? And so the tie he's wearing must be red because he only ever wears red clothes. No? Well, he wears, he wears ruby red and fire truck red. His whole closet is full with red clothes, right? All the red clothes and get his nippers on. So I'm sure you would agree then, you've got to agree with this, that Fergus, the frog, is the same colour as Barney's tie, right? Yes, it is. So Fergus... Is red too. No, no, the tie has to be red, remember, because Barney wouldn't wear anything that's not red. He loves red. That's his only colour that he wears. That's good. Do you need more proof? Do you need more proof? It seems like you do. You guys are a bit slow on the uptake, right? Fergus is the same colour as this apple, isn't he? Have a look. And apples are red. Yeah? They are. See? So Fergus... Fergus must be red then, right? You're just not getting it, right? Oh, yeah. Let me introduce you to my penguin friend. Her name is Rose. Say hello, Rose. Hello, Rose. Now, Rose says it's very nice to meet you. Now, you really need to switch on your listening ears, right? And your watching eyes. This is very simple. But, but you guys tend to miss simple things. Roses are red. Yeah? So, Rose... The penguin is red. We all know that roses are red. It's the start of a very well-known poem, right? That, so, roses are red. There you go. So, Rose, the penguin, is red. No. Now, 
You just don't get it, mate. Come on, you've got to pay attention. Red Rose is wearing glasses. Her glasses are red. Yeah, they are, because they're the same colour as the cover of the book, which is a red book. All right, it's called the Red Book, so the cover has to be red, otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Definitely wrong, I don't know. Okay, so I know you don't think that this book is red, but remember, you thought Fergus was green, right? So I don't know if I can trust your judgment on this, right? He's not green. Nothing about Fergus is green. We've already discussed that. He's going. Well, sometimes we all get things wrong, all right? So we're only human. I understand it's okay to make mistakes, right? I mean, you didn't even think Barney was red, right? But everything here is red. Look. She just doesn't get it. She just doesn't get it. Oh, my goodness. Give up, here. All right, well, well, when you were a baby, which for some of you wasn't too long ago, you thought Arab... Spoons were aeroplanes, right? Um, you were wrong then, and you're wrong now. And I hate to be the one to tell you, but you've really lost the plot. All right. All right, that's enough. I'm the grown-up. As I said last week, I'm the pastor, all right? What I say goes, and they are read because I said so. Let's just leave it there, okay? Now, did you find that book frustrating? <laughs> Yes? It's super frustrating, isn't it, right? Uh, it's really frustrating. It's like talking to a crazy person, uh, trying to, me trying to convince you that those things that weren't red were red. Because I know what red is, and you all know what red is, obviously. Um, but here's this person, this author of this book, trying to tell you something different, right? They're trying to convince you in all these different ways uh, that red is something else. Now, some of the ways were quite convincing, you know, roses are red, uh, apples are red, that the guy only ever wears red and his tie's red, so it must be red. Lots of convincing ways. But deep down we know that you can't change a colour, right? We know red is red. You can't make up your own definition about red because, well, truth is truth, right? Truth is truth. If something's red, it's red because it's true. And what Graham's going to speak to us about in a moment is that it's the same with God, The truth about God is revealed to us in the Bible, right? And what God says is true. What God says is right. We can't make up our own truth about God or we can't make our own truth about the world. We can't change the truth. If you have a look at what the Bible says, uh, if I can get this up, here we go. Let's make it big. This is uh, from Psalm 119. Uh, It says this. He's talking about... God's words. He says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Say that again. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. What God says is true. It's correct. But also it's eternal. That means it lasts forever. So what God says is it goes on and 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 on. And even though what we read in the Bible may have been written a few thousand years ago, We know that it echoes on through the ages and it always remains true. It won't change. And so even though we might have different voices in our lives telling us what we should believe, telling us what's true, it could be TV, movies, books, internet, friends, family, all these different things telling us what's true and what's right and maybe even changing the truth a little bit. Some of these messages are really helpful, but some aren't. What we need to do is respect and, and, and listen to those different views, but we need to see what we can learn for them. But 
we need to always understand that the Bible, the Bible, the Word of God is the ultimate source of truth. That's where all our truth comes from. We can trust the Bible because the Bible is truth. Uh, the Bible is a truth that will last forever. It's been confirmed. It's been confirmed to us through Jesus, uh, the, the one who brought the Bible to us and enlightens us to understand the Bible uh, through his resurrection from the dead. We know that this is true and our life should be based on what the Bible says. This is a truth that can't be changed. Uh, and, and, and if we're starting to think otherwise, maybe what Graham says is true, that we need to reset to the manufacturer's settings. Uh, the Bible shows us how to find life and truth, and this is one thing that will never change. Sponsor's message is over. Graham. I think we'll just close. Am I back on? Yes. I am. Okay. From the mouths of babes and children and youth and children's pastors. The first reset that John says to us is we need to reset our idea of truth. We're to walk in truth. In today's pluralistic society, truth is no longer considered to be absolute, nor necessary. In previous times, truth was something that one decided based on some authority outside of yourself. However, in modern thought, truth is something you construct for yourself. It might be true for you, doesn't mean it's true for me. You think it's true, good for you. There's no sense today of there being a truth that is eternal. It's no longer objective, it's become very subjective. You can select your own source of truth from a whole list of options or you can just make up your own. So if truth is no longer authoritative... Where do you go to find out? Maybe popular opinion. Well, if you're a politician, that's the way it goes. You follow popular opinion. How about just consensus? Well, you know, 7 out of 12 or 7 out of 10, whatever, must make it true. Or perhaps your own experience is your measure of truth. Well, I did this and this happened, so that must be true. A sample of one is never enough to make a decision based upon that. However, as Christians, we need to hold fast to the Holy Scriptures. They're infallible. They're inerrant. Now, we could spend the whole day just debating what is truth, And how you find it. We could argue for tradition. And if you're in Eastern Europe, tradition amongst the Orthodox churches is on page one. 
If it's been passed down from tradition to tradition, that has more weight than what the scriptures say. Mindfulness, very big in the psychological service today. If you can get in touch with yourself and you will find within yourself the cause of truth, the core of who you are. Or astrology. Athena star woman will tell you the truth. Maybe your faith is totally on science that tells you how, what, where and why. Well, take your pick of any of those. It's certainly not why. Maybe you're more tactile and truth is found in palm reading. You know? Uh, That's pretty big in some parts of the world as well but I'm I'm convinced that the word of God correctly interpreted gives me truth to guide my decisions my priorities and participate in healthy relationships and there you get those from 1 John 1 What about these essential truths? Well, the truth about God and Jesus up on the slide at the moment. And at this point we part company from those who say that there is no God or Jesus is just a myth or he's just a man. From this passage we find that John is saying, no, God exists. Not only does he exist, but he's holy, he's righteous. You can't muck around with God, he's separate. He has a truth system that cannot be stood against. But you notice that he's also personable. He's personal and personable says you can have fellowship with God. Think about that. The God who created the world, you can have fellowship with him. Fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's not some far off God according to the scriptures. You can have a fellowship with him. He's willing to forgive and restore. We've broken his laws, we've gone against his truth, we've set up our own criteria and yet he's willing to forgive us and restore us back to his own settings where he loves us and cares for us and he gives us all that we need for life. And Jesus, it says, is the incarnate son of God who embodies truth. I mean, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You don't want to say that out too loud today. But he's the incarnate son. He is God come to earth in human form, but he's totally God and he's totally human. That's an essential truth. And he rose again. 
Some of you don't know Pete Andrews. Those of us that do expect to see him again because of the resurrection. Peter has just passed on. He hasn't disappeared. He's now with his beloved creator. It's the resurrection. Jesus came, died and rose again that we might have life. That's an essential truth. We don't mourn as those who have no faith, Scripture tells us. And Jesus is our eternal saviour. whose blood purifies us from every sin. That's an essential truth. Which means we are sinful and we need a saviour. You don't want to say that out too loud today. But also in this passage we learn about the truths about humanity. I mentioned one, that we are sinful And at this point we part company with those who hold to the intrinsic goodness of humanity and those who attempt to convince us that there is no consequence for our behaviours. There's no responsibility that we have to take for them. It's society's fault. It's genetics. It's not what scripture says. To be responsible for our sinfulness means to accept what Scripture says. It says there that we are deceitful. We can deceive ourselves. It says we're sinful. There's an erroneous idea that permeates even the Christian church that says somehow we were born without sin and Because we sin makes us a sinner. It's not what scripture says. It says we were born with a sinful nature, that's why we sin. It's not the reverse. You don't become a sinner when you sin, you are a sinner, that's why you sin. That's an important thing to believe, that's a foundation. Humanity has a sinful and deceitful nature. And the evil one would keep us from that truth. And it's not a sliding scale. You see, you can stack up all of the good things you do against the things that you've done bad. It doesn't amount to a hot, really a pile of beans because it's the nature of who we are that has to change. And that's why Jesus came, to give us his eternal nature that will carry us through eternity And humanity is lost without Jesus. That says that we're bigots. Do you know that? We're bigots. And we're being unchristian when we say that everyone else in the world who is not a Christian believer is hellbound. Well, you're not allowed to say that anymore either. 
See, we live in a society that is really anti-Christian. It's no longer post-Christian, it's now anti-Christian. And we have to reset our lives to the masters, the manufacturers' settings. Or we'll become that bloated, complacent church that we are identified with in the East. We're accused of being bigots when we stand on Jesus' words that he, through his sacrificial death and resurrection, is the only way to have your sins forgiven and accepted into righteousness with the Father. We cannot dilute this truth or we compromise our whole faith. So how do these truths help us respond? We live in this rather decadent society. How does these truths help us? Well, they help us reset our decision-making processes to align with the manufacturers. When you make a decision, folks, do you first of all think, what would Jesus do in this situation? What is the Christian belief behind this? Do I just go, well, I need, I need another one of those when I've got four of them? What, upon what do you make your decisions? Upon the truth of Scripture or upon your own deceitful self? It helps us set our priorities in line with manufacturer settings. I was doing consulting in a number of these places in the, in the east and block. And I found that instead, when you look at scripture, it says God first, then your family, then your church family, then your ministry. Well, these people had inverted that. They were burning out in ministry because they had their priorities inverted. They were going down the wrong path. What are your priorities? Do you put yourself first? Or is God's kingdom what it's about? Do you invest in investment properties or whatever so you can have more or so you can advance God's kingdom? What are the priorities that you have? Does your family come first or does your ministry come first? And it also helps us reset our relationships. Are your relationships healthy? Are you a taker or a giver? Do you walk with people or do you walk in front of them or do you walk behind them? What is the way... You relate to people. Do you relate in love and tenderness and gentleness, looking to serve rather than to be served? These are the things that our reset button will bring. We need to return to Scripture. We need to return to the manufacturer settings. If we're going to actually make the kingdom of God in our particular family, in our particular block, community, suburb, whatever, actually beat to the heartbeat of our God.
reset to the manufacturer's setting of truth. What authority do you bow to? Popularity, peer group, finances, what is it? Let's commit to the authority of God's word. Next week we'll look at purity and love. Let me pray. Lord, help us to see these truths as foundation. As Christians, we are dependent upon your word. You teach us from your word. You give us direction. You tell us the truth about the world, about others, about ourselves. Lord, help us live out those truths that others may see that our lives are different because of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.